Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I'm Tim. If you're visiting for the first time, really glad that you're with us. Ready to step into the Word as uh, Brandon has already prayed. Let's take our Bibles and let's head for the Gospel of Matthew this morning, chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. There's a little note page in that bulletin you received when you came in. If you'll retrieve that, that would be helpful along the way. And if you need a Bible today, we've got Bibles in the back. We'd love to be able to put one in your hands today. And if you've joined us today, uh, perhaps for the first time or the first time in a long time, and I know that that is true for a few in our church family, Linda over here, Jake and his family over here, and others, great to, to make some reacquaintance. But if you are here perhaps for the first time or first time in a long time, you've done so obviously on a special Sunday that has had as a part of it not just our worship together, um, but also a baptism celebration and a brunch. And you have joined us on uh, the day that we wrap up a little three-part mini-series, as you see there on that note page, titled, May I See Your ID, Please? And the thought behind this little series is simple. Were we to be asked, May I See Your ID, Please, Christian? What forms of ID might we be able to show? Or figuratively speaking, what forms of ID could we pull out? None of us carry around an ID card that says, I'm a Christian. I don't have one of those, uh, not in my pocket, but I do have ID. And so what forms of ID might we be able to produce? And it's, a, it's just the, the direction that we thought the Lord wanted us to go for a few mornings together. And while we could maybe come up with several valid responses to that question, We've chosen to zero in on three forms of ID that we could produce as those who are in Jesus. They would be recognized by heaven and they would be valid wherever we go. Now, two of them we have already unpacked and the third we take up today. The first form of ID we explored is our genuine and our regular participation in the observance of communion or the Lord's table when we share that together as family. Jesus commands everyone who believes in him as their Lord and Savior. They believe that he is sinless God who came in flesh and that he did what he said he would do. He died on the cross, paid our sin debt for us, and rose from the dead to prove that he had accomplished that for us. Jesus commands all who believe those truths about him to regularly remember his death as our Savior and to do that through the bread and the cup. And it's our joy to do that often here. Well, that's one way that we ID with Jesus. A second way that we ID with Jesus is by our obedience to Jesus' command to be baptized. And we just had the most beautiful, fresh reminder of what that looks like as we shared with five of our high schoolers a few moments ago. Now, a third way we ID with with Jesus is through our personal identification with and our involvement in a local church where Jesus and God's word are at the center. So three forms of ID, remembering Jesus saving death often, being baptized once, we only do that once in our Christian journey, and then being invested in Jesus' church personally and practically all of the time. May I see your ID, please, Christian? We say, well, yes, you can. Yes, I will show you. Now, I wish to be up front with all of you friends and church family in this moment, as I hope I always am, but I want you to know at the very outset where I intend to go with us today. 
I've never preached in the direction or shared in the direction that we are going to do. In 35 years, I've never brought a message of the kind that we're going to share today. But I want you to know where we're going. I would not be serving you well if we just talked about this third form of ID, personal involvement in a local church, if we were to mean by that some kind of a casual attachment to a church. Well, this is my church when I go to church. Whenever that is, that's the church that I land at. We're not talking about that this morning. That's not ID. That's not, that's not your ID. Uh, I, there was a person who said to me one time, I, I go to all the churches on the hill, and I just let the Spirit lead me to the one for that day. And uh, I don't think they knew they were talking to a, a pastor in that moment. But it was almost as if the church was being viewed as, as dishes. All the churches on the hill were like dishes at a buffet line. Or something, and well, I'll have a little of this over here, and 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 then that looks interesting to me over there, and 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 I, I like that because it makes me feel good in that place, and 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 so there's this this little, if any, what you would call personal investment or involvement or commitment. It's just kind of take and consume, and never give back. A casual attachment to a church and that church's life is not what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to take us to the scriptures and seek to make a case for a Christian stepping into the life of a local church through what is known as church membership and doing that as a tangible expression of this third form of ID. Even though, church family, the words church membership don't appear in a single verse in the Bible. I will attempt to do that because it's my conviction that church membership is so strongly implied in the New Testament that the words aren't even necessary. And with this term, church membership, I want you to know what we're thinking about as we head off in this direction. And so there's a little definition on your note page. We'll put it up on the screen. Here's what we mean by that term. We're thinking about a follower of Jesus who, by means of a formal process, now that's important, a formal process, publicly joins a particular local church declaring their commitment to live biblically while pledging their support of stated doctrines and practices and procedures under which that local church has organized itself. So when I use that term, church membership, this is what I would be thinking about with you today. We publicly join a particular local church. We identify with it. We invest in it. We are committed to it. And many of you have already done that here at IBC, but there would be many that have not gone in that direction, at least not yet. We live in a culture that values greatly non-commitment. Would you agree with that thought? I think that is true. We, help, we hate cell phone contracts, don't we? We don't like those. We, we don't like cable contracts or any other kind of contract that might tie us down. We want to be able to, to change our plans or, or hop around and do whatever we want whenever we feel like doing that. And as Americans, that's kind of built into our DNA because we pride ourselves on being independent and being free. Millennials in our culture, if you've heard that term, those who were born after 1984, it's a huge part of our population. 
that group openly admits, openly acknowledges that they struggle with authority and with commitment. And I'm not just picking on them. That's what they will say. They acknowledge that. Now, sadly, much of the American church has sought to be culturally relevant by softening or abandoning altogether this thought of church membership. The concept of a, of a deliberate and formal commitment to a local church family. In fact, non-commitment is often used by churches today as a promotional tool to get them to come to that church. Just come. We promise we won't ask you for anything. You want to be a part of a church like that? Well, that's a very popular, that's a very popular thought. We're not going to ask you for anything. Just come. Now, while that may be culturally appealing, church family, that will not help any Christian go deeper in his or her life with Jesus. I think you would understand that. The Bible is God's written word that details how followers of Jesus are to live. The problem is that much of what the Bible teaches about community and about church commitment as a key way that we love God and grow deeper into him It's the very opposite of what our old sin nature wants to do. It wants to insulate and isolate. And it certainly runs against what our culture uh, finds attractive. Things that aren't committing or are going to make me accountable or make me a member of something. And so this morning, let's just chase this question down. Is church membership really biblical? Is it biblical? How could it be? If we never see the words church membership on or the command to to become a a church member anywhere on the pages of our Bible, how could that be biblical? It's not it's not on the page of my Bible. There's no verse. Well, maybe I could offer up this thought. We never see the words the Trinity one time in our Bibles, do we? It's not there. The Trinity It's not, those words are not there. And yet, it is one of the most basic and essential truths that we have as a follower of Jesus. God is one God. He exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a mystery. We don't know how that works, but it works. And so the words, the Trinity, they never appear. But but the truth is clear. In fact, it's absolutely essential to all that we understand about our faith. So we must be careful not to just assume that something is not biblical because we don't see the words in the Bible. So in order to answer this question, is church membership really biblical? Let's begin by simply remembering that our Trinitarian God invented the church community. That's his idea. And in himself, he is the perfect expression of community, shared life, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three but one. And he cares about community in the church. Very often the focus in our day seems to be on me and God. It's kind of that. It's, just, it's me and God. Whatever we do, it's me and God. Almost to the exclusion of the thought of we and God. We emphasize our own personal relationship with Jesus and forget that we were called into a community by him the moment that we gave our life to Jesus in saving faith. And this community that we've been called into, 
is called the church. Do you remember these words of Jesus? Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, there on your Bible page. We'll put it on the screen as well. Jesus said, I will build what? My church. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Is that not a great verse for us? That's a great verse. Jesus invents the church and then he says, hey, it's here to stay. It is here to stay. Hell itself will not overcome it. And we should all be saying amen and praise God. The Greek word that Jesus uses for church is, is the word ekklesia. And many of you would know that. You've been around long enough to know that's the Greek word. In the New Testament, the root of this word means called out. Ek, out, Kaleo, to call, to call out. And then the whole word means a gathering or an assembly of called out ones. So the moment that God calls a sinner out of darkness and into salvation light through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, and I hope I'm describing you and that that is what you believe today, that sinner is, according to Scripture, supernaturally placed into Jesus' church. It's automatic. You are in his church through faith in him. Maybe you have heard before the the distinction between the universal church and the local church. Every true believer everywhere in the world right now being a part of the church universal that belongs to Jesus. We're familiar with that. And, 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 And that as opposed to the local church, in this case, Idlewell Bible Church, we'll just use it as an example, which is a specific gathering of believers who are part of Jesus' universal church, but they're also this local entity. The New Testament uses the word ecclesia, church, to describe both the universal church and the local church. But within this definition of this word is the idea of physical gathering together of the called out. They physically come together because they're the called out through faith in Jesus. Now, by definition, church requires then gathering. We get together. Though we may get a taste of the universal church in our lives when we go on a, let's say, a cross-cultural missions trip and we go to to Guatemala or to China, as we have done, or Turkey with some of our church family or South America. We get a feel of the universal church when we step out of our own, our own little town here. But the most common way that we experience Jesus' church in our daily lives is on this local level. This is where it happens for us. To be a Christian, according to the Bible, assumes that you're going to be in a saved relationship with God through faith in Jesus, and you're going to be in a community with other believers in a local church who share your faith. doesn't assume that you're going to be a church member, but it does assume that you're going to be part of a local church. This definitely challenges, I believe, the individualism that runs rampant in our hearts, in our minds, in our culture. We so want to be kind of doing our own thing. So on your note page, let me offer up an expanded definition of ecclesia. We'll put it on the screen. Ecclesia, the church. What is it? It's a local, organized community of believers who are in a loving and committed relationship with Jesus Christ and 
with one another, and they gather regularly for the worship and glory of God and the mutual edification and equipping of each other. Now, there are many definitions of church. This is the one that, 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 that we've landed on here today. Now, as you look at that definition, I'll just let you know that there are many who do not like the word organized in this definition. That doesn't feel good. Organization kills churches, some would like to say. When you organize the church, it loses its power. When you organize the church, the spirit can't move. You've, you've, you've burdened the church with organization. Well, if that's true, then the local church certainly shouldn't have a membership process because that's organizational, right? Shouldn't do membership. But church family, the early church was organized. And we can't read the New Testament and not come away with that conclusion being crystal clear and true. And we, we see this organization of the local church in so many ways on the pages of our New Testament. Much of the Apostle Paul's ministry, if you know his ministry, it revolves around establishing new local churches in cities and towns And when he goes into one of these places, he systematically raises up leadership in that local church. He teaches specific doctrines and and instructions on how that local church family is to live for Jesus and to live within the community of the redeemed. And he does that in Ephesus and Corinth and Colossae and Philippi and Thessalonica and Rome and in Galatia in all of those places. In 1 Corinthians 7.17, Paul says he gives the same operational instructions to all the churches that he ministers to. Organization is part of the church. It's how it works. It's how it functions. If you remember in Acts chapter 6, we see leaders appointed in the very beginning of the church in order to manage or oversee uh, functional needs within that local church family so that the apostles could focus on their tasks. And so there was leadership structure. There was organization. Or in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1 or, or 1 Peter 5, the leadership fr- criteria by which a church is going to, to select its leaders, it's laid out. Here's what you need to look at before you call somebody into leadership. Very specific organization. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul tells the local church there that that they are to organize and display generosity through their offering. They're to give back to the Lord from their material resources. And Paul says, I give the same instruction in every church that I go to. Organization. Acts chapter 13, the first church organized missionary teams to be sent out. It's very interesting. Even the esteemed apostle Paul didn't go rogue and say, well, I'm just going to go do my thing. No, he was sent out by the church in Antioch because that's how the church operated. In 1 Timothy 5, the church in Ephesus has an organized strategy for caring for its widows. They couldn't care for the widows effectively without that organization. And in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul reminds the church family, when they gather together, they are to conduct themselves in an orderly way. Do it with order. And then he adds in 1433 of the same chapter, God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of order. And Paul says in all the churches of the saints, it's to work this way. So organization, it just kind of falls off the page. And we just scratched the surface of that. Evidence that local churches, 
They organized, and the, and the people cared for one another in an orderly way. So no matter how we slice it in the New Testament, the churches needed organization. But just because the church should be organized, that doesn't necessarily mean it that you should become a church member, does it? Does it automatically mean that? What do you think? No. No. Just because there needs to be organization, do I need to become a member of the church? Well, I wouldn't say that in the moment. But wait, there's more. (laughs) The New Testament presents a number of really beautiful illustrations and commands, I think, that seem to imply, if not demand, some kind of a formal, recognized, and witnessed by the congregation type of commitment that we would call church membership. In some ways, says, well, show me that. Don't just tell me that. Show me that. I want to see that. So let's unpack a few things together, and we'll see what sticks. In the middle of your note page, let's just make an observation, first of all. And it would be this, that each church metaphor in the New Testament, strongly implies committed, involved, and integrated participation. Now, a metaphor is when one object or idea is used in place of another to show the likeness or to show the similarity. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit employs several of these metaphors to convey a central idea about the church. And that, and that is that the individual members of a church family are involved in something that is much bigger than just themselves. These metaphors celebrate a kind of organic unity, uh, an interconnectedness, uh, uh, an interdependence. We would call it a cohesive kind of commitment to each other. And you say, show me. Well, I'll do that. Peter Peter, for example, presents the church as a spiritual house in 1 Peter chapter 2, with the people of the church being likened to living stones that the house is made of. So this morning, I could say to you, if you are in Jesus and you come to IBC, you're part of the living stones that make up this house. That's, that, that's the, the organic connectedness here. In a house, all the bricks, we could say, are in. I mean, they are all in. They're part. They're fully integrated. There's no brick that's saying, you know, I want to be a part of the house, but I don't want to be in the house. I want to lay on the ground outside of the house, but be in the house. The bricks are in the house, right? Or they're not a part of the house. So it's a beautiful picture of this connectedness, this organic unity. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, spirit-inspired, presents the church as being a family. We use that term a lot to talk about our our church. We, We call us the family, the IBC family. Well, we didn't just cook that up. He calls us the household of God in chapter 2, verse 19 of Ephesians. And a household or a family is a metaphor that, that really talks about our, our commonality, common life, common name, common source, common parentage, common concerns, common responsibilities, shared life in the most intimate possible setting, the family. That's the local church. And there's nothing in this metaphor that hints at anybody in the family being a spectator. 
Nobody's a spectator in a family, at least not in a healthy family, right? You're all in. You're part of it. Everybody in, everybody apart. Same imagery when Peter calls the church the flock of God in 1 Peter 5. The sheep have one shepherd. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. He is the chief shepherd. And we say, amen, and may it always be so. But Peter says that the chief shepherd has entrusted the care of the the sheep in a local fellowship, a local flock. He's entrusted their care to a group of under shepherds called elders. The sheep are in the fold. In the flock, they're identified with the flock. The under-shepherds know who the people are who are in the flock. They've identified with that local church family formally in some way, a sub-flock that's part of the larger flock of God all around the world. And maybe the use of the human body as a metaphor for the church is hard to beat for both beauty and understanding. Paul uses the picture of the body as a reflection of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And again, there's this organic connection, this interdependence of every part of the body being connected to every other part and the body not being healthy and working unless all the parts are connected and doing their thing together. We have a common flow of blood. We have a common heart, a common head. His name is Jesus. And his life pulsing through all of us organically connects each one of us on a spiritual level so that no no, no one of us can be without the rest of us. We need each other. We need the little toes and we need the thumbs in this church family. We need the ears and the noses and the hands and the feet in order to be a healthy body and no part independent, no part disconnected, no part unattached. In fact, the unattached part of the body is not going to survive, right? And that's, what, that's the beauty of that picture. You've got to be in. The word belonging is a great word when we talk about these beautiful metaphors that the Holy Spirit has given to us. They all speak of belonging. Now, there is no puzzle metaphor in the Bible, but it would surely be a great metaphor. Be a great metaphor. You know, we've all built puzzles, right? And, and what is it that you always wonder when you're building a puzzle? Is there a piece missing? And it doesn't matter how big or beautiful or great that puzzle is. If that last piece is not in there, it's not a complete puzzle, right? And that's really the the picture of the church. Belonging is at the very heart of what we're talking about. Belonging to a local church family in the most organic and connected way. Now, does does church membership automatically make that happen? Mm, Not necessarily. Does church membership save us, by the way? No way. No way. Only Jesus saves. But church membership... Well, that enhances our sense of belonging because we have formally and publicly come before a a group of like-minded believers and we've said, without words really, we've stood before that church family and we've said, this is my spiritual house. This is my family. This is the flock that I graze with. This is the body that I am united with for its good and for my good too. And then speaking of what's good for us, at the bottom of your note page is this observation. We say there, membership is a proactive step of accountability 
that results in greater protection for any Christian. Now think about that for just a second. Our Bibles are straight up honest with us in telling us that the moment that we step into life with the Lord Jesus through faith in him, we step into a very real, never-ending-in-this-life spiritual battle. Would you agree, fellow Christian? You are at war, right? With a spiritual enemy who is incredibly powerful. His name is Satan. We used to be part of his kingdom. We used to to live by the ways of his value system. But we have been set free through faith in the Lord Jesus. We're no longer a part of that world. But that doesn't stop our enemy from trying to take us back. And so in 1 Peter 5.8, here's the warning. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like what, church? A roaring lion to eat you up. That's the reality every day that you live with as a follower of Jesus. And because that is true, we need all of the help that we can get in our battle with our own sin nature to say nothing of the schemes of the adversary We need help. And one of the greatest weapons for our fight with our enemy is each other. Would you agree with that? The scriptures certainly call that to our attention. Check out Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Here's what we read. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together. We're going to gather together as is the habit of some, some don't do that, but let's encourage one another how to do the Christian life and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Because it's going to get darker and darker and darker before Jesus comes. We need each other. If you flip your note page over, check out Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You come alongside of your brother or sister who's struggling spiritually, battling with sin, the temptation, whatever it is. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When we step into church membership, we are publicly saying to our church family, Please help me to stay true to my Lord and my Savior. Help me by holding me accountable for how I'm living for him. If you see me off course or if I'm being foolish or I'm doing stupid, call me out. Please call me out. It won't be pleasant for you. It won't be pleasant for me, but it will save me. It will help me. You and I are are by membership being proactive in our efforts to pursue righteousness, godliness, and faith, as 1 Timothy 6.11 says. Sadly, sadly, church family, the reason some do not step into church membership is because they do not want this kind of accountability in their life. Do you think that's true? Sadly, that is true. And not only is that sad, that's revealing about about that person and about the depth of their relationship with their Lord. If there's anything that we can practically do 
to defend against our sworn enemy and to walk more consistently in the steps of Jesus, I just ask you, why would we not do that? Why would we not do that? Membership, it helps us. It helps us to walk. And then another observation we can make as we talk about our church ID, membership is a tangible expression of submission to the authority structure God has placed over your local church. Now, as we noted earlier, authority and commitment are not popular words in our culture, but they certainly are critical to the biblical functioning of a healthy church. Check this out. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your what? Remember your leaders. That implies organization. That implies structure. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 17, same chapter. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Paul writes the local church family in Thessalonica and he, as he wraps up that letter, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are what? Over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, the words church membership appear in none of these passages, but it is certainly implied or maybe just assumed. A group of Jesus followers in a local community have united together in that place and they have identified leaders who have agreed to assume their spiritual responsibility and care of that group. We call them elders. Now, how is this leadership and how is this submission going to work effectively if there's not some kind of an expressed public willingness to lead and to be led. How does it work well? This expressed willingness to support the leadership structure of the church is part of church membership. It's what you're saying. I'm going to be a part of the team. The non-leaders in a local church are to remember in prayer those who lead them, to imitate them, obey them. The elders who, give are, who lead, they're going to give an account to God one day for how they've cared for those who are in their, in their charge. Are we as Christians, let me just ask this, are we as Christians to imitate all church leaders everywhere? Are we supposed to do that? Are we supposed to submit to the teaching of anyone who claims to be a Christian in any church anywhere in the world? Are we supposed to do that? No, no. But we are called to do that within our local church home with those that we know and trust and have earned our trust and have been asked to lead us. We are to submit to them. It's part of it. And, and from the leader's perspective, are the local church leaders going to give an account to God one day for the whole universal church of Christians? No, absolutely not. But for the welfare of a local body, will they have to give an account? Church family, I tell you, I tremble whenever I ponder this truth. I'm going to stand before the God of the universe and I'm going to answer to him for how I've cared for you. And don't think that doesn't make my knees knock as I think about that. That's scary. We make the leadership's duties before the Lord lighter and less difficult 
when they know who their flock really is. And how will they know who their flock really is? Church membership helps that process along. And Hebrew writer says, that's to your advantage. Whatever will help your leaders lead you well, that's what you want to do. And if church membership helps accomplish that, do it. So if we downplay the importance of membership, it's difficult to see how we can take these commands to lead and submit and really fulfill them well. We might be able to carry them off with some measure of weakness, but we won't do it well. Next there on your page, membership provides a proper context for carrying out church discipline. Hmm. No one likes to talk about this. Nobody likes to talk about church discipline or carry it out for sure. It is one of the most painful things that a church family ever does. And if you've been here long enough, you've been a part of the pain here at IBC when we've had to do this as well. But it's a biblical command, both from Jesus and the Holy Spirit to the church. Church discipline, what is it? Well, that's the process of confronting sin within a local fellowship. Because the church is the house, the family, the flock, the body of Jesus in the world, sin cannot be allowed to just persist. You can't just look away and expect to be a healthy church. It weakens the fellowship internally. It damages its testimony externally when a church doesn't confront sin. We actually see church membership, I think, implied strongly through the words, though they never appear, the words church membership, just by the very way the local church is supposed to address sin amongst its people. Check this out. Hear the words of Jesus. This is Jesus telling us this. Matthew 18, 15 to 17, where the church, the ecclesia, has to do this difficult but loving thing of calling out sin. Jesus said, Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. He's repented. He's come back. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the what? To the church the ecclesia, and if he refuses to listen even to the church family when they come around and and, and confront and say, turn from this, this, this course, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So according to Jesus, church discipline is carried out with those who are unrepentant inside the church. If a professing Christian within a church family refuses repeated efforts calling for brokenness over sin and and a repentant heart, the church is to remove this sinful member from from insiderness because they've chosen not to live like an insider anymore. Do you follow Jesus' thought? Are you with me, church? These are strong words. This isn't easy stuff, but super important. What does insiderness imply? Membership, maybe. Yeah? If there is no church membership, how can we define the group that will take up this sensitive and weighty matter of exhorting the unrepentant person and finally reaching a collective decision that they can no longer have ongoing involvement in that local church community because of their choices? 
If you don't have a membership process, how do you define the group that carries that weight? That's big deal stuff. It's hard to believe that Jesus would be saying that just anyone who shows up at your church claiming to be a Christian should be involved in that process. Surely the church in verse 17 that Jesus says twice there, in his mind, he, he must, it must be in his mind a defined group who by their mutual commitment to the word of God and to the fellowship are able to handle this very difficult matter together. And so I would just suggest church discipline is necessary to keep a church spiritually healthy and church membership is necessary to most effectively perform church discipline. The hope, of course, is always that such painful measures will result in repentance and that person will come back, back into the, into the flock, into the house, into the body. And then, and then speaking of... of, of being light in a dark place, which is what we're trying to be when we exercise discipline. That next thought on your note page moves in that direction. Membership enhances our potential to reach Idlewild with the truth of Jesus. Now, this is something that, that many of us may have never considered before, but think about this with me. Jesus prayed on the night before he went to the cross this prayer. He said, Father, The glory that you've given to me, I have given to them that they may be, what's the word? One, One, even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus has said that a unified church where everyone is pulling in harness together is impossible for an unbelieving world not to see. You follow that? So if you're part of a local church family where the vast majority, it will never be everybody, I get that, but where the vast majority of those who call that place home have publicly pledged to God and to one another through the membership process that they will, by the Holy Spirit's enabling, love God, love the Lord Jesus, love their brothers and sisters, and be biblically sensitive and alive and spiritually living for him, accountable to one another, investing themselves, their time, their spiritual gifts, their resources in that church. If most of the people in that church family have made that pledge to one another through membership, that church family is going to be one and united in a way that cannot be ignored by Idlewild. I believe that with all my heart. It will have a stability. That church family will have a health, a vitality, a unity that is attractive. And it's miles ahead of a church family where no such call for commitment or investment through membership exists. And when we have a heart for the unchurched and spiritually lost in our town, our community, and we have a church home that we have pledged ourselves to and we're proud to be part of, man, that becomes the foundation off of which we launch ourselves into our community. We're excited about doing that because we have something to invite them to that we believe in. To say it another way, the collective power of the unified testimony of all of us gives credence to the individual testimony of any one of us. You believe that? I believe that. I believe that. 
And then just because it's true, at least here at IBC, there on your note page, membership gives us a voice in and ownership of critical decisions this church family makes. You know, one of the reasons a church family identifies and calls into service capable leaders, elders and deacons, is so that they can oversee the daily ongoing spiritual and practical needs of the fellowship. But who those leaders are going to be, who's going to shoulder the responsibility of of all of that within a church family, hey, the members vote on that. At least in this church, the members vote who's going to lead. They vote. And so if you're not a member of IVC, you have no say in that critical decision of who your leaders are going to be. And you want to have a voice in that. And when other major decisions that impact the life of this church come about, it's the members who vote. It's not the, it's, it's not the, the elder team or the pastors or, or the deacons. Members have the deciding vote. If you call IBC home, and this is there on your note page, and it's your church family, but you're not a member Your voice is silenced when it should be heard. We want to hear you. We want you to speak into the life of this church. Well, there's so much more that we could take up, but but time is gone, so let's wrap up with a bottom line thought as we think about this third form of ID. The bottom line, church membership is never about you. It's never about me. It's always about us and it's always about him are you in agreement with me are we in where we share that truth that conviction when you and i entered by grace through faith into life in jesus we were in that moment scripture says placed by the holy spirit into an extraordinary living thing called the church And when that happened, we were instantly called by the one who gave himself up for us. And he gave himself up for us so that we could, in like measure, give ourselves up for others. It's never about us. It's never about you or about me. It's about us together. This truth is reflected so beautifully in more than 31 another statements that we read in Scripture. Man, this is, this is the church right here. Loving one another, devoted to one another, accepting one another, serving one another, carrying one another's burdens, forgiving one another, being at peace with one another, submitting to one another, comforting one another, encouraging one another, confessing our sins, praying with one another, living in harmony with one another, and on and on and on it goes. Not one of those one another's is about me. And it's not about you. They're all about us. And ultimately, they're about him. They're about Jesus. You're right. Church membership, then, is my public confession. It is my pledge to the brothers and sisters of my local church that I am about them. And I'm about him. And I embrace all that goes with that. That's what church membership is. So is church membership really biblical? Well, you know what I think. What do you think? What do you think? If some of the things that we have considered here today lead you to want to think about membership here at IBC, that is a fantastic thought. That's a fantastic thought. There's a little note card in in your bulletin that maybe you've already seen. Uh, if you want to take, take this to the next place, just fill out that little card. Let us know of your intent to, to think about membership. And we'll be glad to follow up with you on that together. Three forms of ID. 
that the Lord Jesus has given to us. Let's pray together, church. Lord, thank you for taking us into your word, and, and you, just, you just go where we need to be. <laughs> I don't know what else to say, Heavenly Father, but thank you for the words that you have provided for us today. Even though the words church membership never showed up on the page, they showed up all over the place. Now you do the good work. Show us where you want to go with all of this. Lord, to the end that we would bring you greater glory as the church family, flock, body, and house. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.